Hello, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable. Grab yourself some sugar-free cookies and go to town, because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and some brand new merch, including a quietly dignified Things Are Going Great For Me coffee mug. Look, collecting obscure coffee mugs is your secret problem, and I'm here to enable you. We've also got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, and even a Things Are Going Great For Me safety mask, folks, so check them out and listen in comfort, style, and good health. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page, at Things Are Going Great For Me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from both our Season 1 and Season 2 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they're adjusting to life in our seemingly unending quarantine and how it's changing life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're thrilled to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. I haven't said this yet, but I've been to Iceland. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited. And the people of Iceland are awesome. And the water? Delicious. On this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. It's Podcaster's Day on Things Are Going Great For Me. Today's first guest is Ira Madison III. Ira is a good buddy of my friend Royce, who was in the first season of our show. You can check out Royce's interview in episode 7. Ira is a podcast host, culture critic, and screenwriter. He's the creator and one of the hosts of the Keep It podcast on Crooked Media. Nylon Magazine has called him one of the most reliably hilarious and incisive cultural critics writing today. He was also famously suspended from Twitter for hilariously impersonating former Texas congressman and 2020 presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. He also went to NYU Tisch School's graduate dramatic writing program. Ira is one of the most brilliant people I've had the pleasure of interviewing. I'm thrilled I was able to chat with him. It's a great conversation. I'll be speaking with Ira in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Brendan McDonald. Brendan is the producer of one of the biggest and most beloved podcasts in the world, the WTF Pod with Mark Marin. I've known Brendan for years. We talk about the WTF Pod and the historic interview they landed with then-President Barack Obama. A buddy and I met Brendan for drinks at a bar after he wrapped that interview, and I got some amazing insight into what went on that day in Mark's famous garage. This year, Brendan and Mark were honored with the first-ever Governor's Award at the inaugural Awards for Excellence in Audio. We chat the history of podcasting, some of the more famous guests of WTF. I'm honored Brendan came on to chat with me. Stick around for his interview. You're not going to want to miss it. Also, just a quick note. I mentioned Ed Asner briefly in my interview with Brendan. I met the man once. He was very kind to me, and he had a very memorable handshake. He was a tremendous talent and a lifelong firebrand for union workers. We want to wish his family well during this difficult time, and may he rest in peace. 
Joining me again is my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. Yeah, hey, how's it going? (laughs) What is your relationship, would you say, with pop culture? Do you indulge in it? Do you have a bunch of guilty pleasures? Uh, I, I, yes. You'll tweet about like a reality show, which I, that okay. I'm completely, I am completely out of the loop. On That's a, on okay. A... So I, I watch the bachelor bachelorette and that is because <laughs> my, my girlfriend watches them and we are now have, uh, this is one of the ways I got through quarantine was I'm part of a group chat based around another podcast. Uh, I'll say the name and we can cut it a bachelor's own podcast, but it's a group chat of people who are treating the bachelor and bachelorette kind of like sports. And that being involved I mean, in those conversations it makes it fun. Yeah, see, that's that's kind of my understanding about how you're supposed to watch those shows anyway. You yeah, know, like I asked my game. wife once about I asked I asked Catherine once about uh, one of those Real Housewife shows, which I don't watch, and mm-hmm. she that's how she she was like, it's like watching boxing. Yeah, I get it. I I have a real issue with the Housewives personally. Uh, it's a constant source of fighting in my relationship because of because i really hate them and i think they're really bad for society uh that being said so is most of the stuff i love so it's all bad it's all bad uh (laughs) are you paying more uh do you have cable or are you paying for streaming services so i do have i have i don't have cable i have the whatever at&t streaming cable basically uh that's been like one consistent thing in my life since i got since I went to college, really, is if I can have cable and HBO, I will have cable and HBO. I like having it. I think it's kind of, I think it's a little fancy thing to have. <laughs> it, sure. Uh, yeah, and I have all the streaming services, too. Like, I have, like, you know, HBO Max, and we have Disney Plus, and, you know, we're basically paying twice the cost of cable for other stuff. Well, that's so. the thing. I mean, like, we so we finally cut the cord with cable, um, I want to say, like, a year ago. And and subsequently got all of the streaming services, and I think we're paying more now yeah. for all of these apps just because somebody says like you got to see this uh, this one show about a girl who gets kidnapped, which is ev- which is Vikings every is single show. About, right? Yeah, you're talking it's, about Vikings on History Channel. It's Search Party as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's every show, and so you invariably I'm like, all right, well, I gotta I gotta get this uh, app just for this one show, uh, and then I just forget yeah. to cancel it. And that we're I've been calling this for years is we're all going to have streaming services and then they're going to start partnering streaming services for less money. And then we're just going to be back at cable. cable. And that's literally where we are. And that's fine. Cause now they're going to be like, I promise you now with Twitch, it's, it's well only at this time. Can you watch this content? And we're going to be like, well, what if I had some kind of, I don't know, physical guide, but I don't know. I'm watching it on TV. So what if I called it a TV guy? Like we are so close to this and that's fine. We're it's good. I don't think it's a bad thing to like, I think it's cool to like, oh, on Sunday nights, everyone was watching Game of Thrones. And that was like, you were that involved in a communal thing, even yeah. though you're not with everybody. So yeah, I, well, I that love that I'm stuff. Served. Yeah, I do love that. Like that event viewing thing is uh, is always fun. And I think like particularly right now, while we're, you know, we're still sort of people are slowly going back to movie theaters to have communal experiences or even live theater and things mm-hmm. like that. It is it is always exciting when it's event television. I miss a lot of it because again we have kids, so it's like yeah. if it's at seven p.m., I don't get. I'm not seeing SummerSlam with everybody because yeah. like oh, I got uh, I got kids. I, I can't, there's nothing yeah. I can do about it. All right, folks, you've been very patient with us. Without further ado, here now is the brilliant and hilarious Ira Madison, the third. Ba, 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 
Hi. Hi. Um, so you, I know you uh, just through basically through your roommate, one of our best friends, uh, both of our best friends, Royce. Yeah. Um, who was on an episode of my podcast. Um, Royce was in my wedding party. We went to college together, and you and Royce have been rooming together through this uh, entire quarantine. Is that right? Uh, through half of it, like September-ish. So it's been what a few ha- months. What happened? He needed a place to stay at some point? Um, yeah, you know, I wanted to move um, and because um, I was living in a sort of one of those like newer complexes. Uh, and then once the pandemic hit, you know, I was sort of paying for a lot of things I couldn't use. So I went to move <laughs> into a house uh, and he was helping me look for places. And then I just asked him if he wanted to move in with me. So, uh, you know, Royce is one of the, he's one of the sharpest culture critics that I know. Um, and, you know, when yeah. I had, when I had him on my show, he didn't disappoint. Um, <laughs> he's extremely opinionated. Uh, he's an excellent debater. I feel like you are both cut from the same cloth in those respects. How often do you both argue and who wins the most arguments? Um, you know, sort of every day. Um, uh, <laughs> but, um, I don't really think there's a winner. <laughs> it's a draw. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't back down. <laughs> he does not. <laughs> I don't imagine that you do either. So I would love to be a fly on the wall for your discussions. I'm hoping. I feel like our friends don't enjoy that, but you know, some people might. <laughs> I, I would. As long as I can shut the fuck up, I think I'd be, I'd enjoy it immensely. Um, I think I heard, I think Royce had said something that, um, that Seth Rogen started following you maybe recently on, on IG and sent you some weed. Is that true? Uh, he did. Yeah. Cause we had, there was an issue with, um, getting the delivery that he had initially wanted, um, from houseplant Seth's new, um, service. So, um, yeah, we got some weed sent to us. How is Seth Rogen's weed? Oh, it's very good. It's very good. Yeah. Nice. Royce is more of a weed person than me and he approves of it. So there you go. All right. Well, great. Yeah. Very, I'm excited to try it myself. Um, I think that you said, so you're taking some time off starting tomorrow. Where, where are you headed? Um, I'm headed to Santa Fe and then to Savannah. Why? Um, well, I sort of am a person who writes, um, you know, I need sort of no distractions and sort of to be by myself uh, if it's a project that I really need to dig into. Um, so I'm just taking a little break from LA for a bit. That sounds and, great. Uh, yeah. Is it so you're are you working on um are you working on a book? No, I'm working on a screenplay. Oh, so. got it. Oh, great. And, yeah. are, and are you doing a, one of these solo retreats? Yeah, you know, I guess retreat is what you call it. I just always like to pick a place to go and then just sort of write there by myself. Do you have a genre already picked? Uh it's it's I've already sold it. It's already been announced. It's a Christmas movie um for a new line um for Jennifer Hudson. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. That sounds... Thank you. That sounds very exciting. Um, yeah. Great. Do you, you Are you a big Christmas person? Is Christmas the holiday? Uh, it, it I don't is know if for it's me. the holiday, but I enjoy Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, so you've been called uh, one of the most reliably hilarious and incisive cultural critics writing today. That's a quote from Nylon Magazine. Uh, I'm saying this mostly for my audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, uh, I think a lot of people like know who you are. Six years ago, <laughs> that was six years ago. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure Nylon doesn't agree anymore. But thank you. <laughs> so I'm just listing these things just for anybody who might not know these things, but a lot mm-hmm. of people do. You've worked as a former writer at MTV and BuzzFeed. You've worked as a critic for the Daily Beast, GQ, and Variety. You've also written mm-hmm. for Netflix, and you even wrote for the infamous Quibi. I did, yeah. I had a Quibi. I had a Quibi phase. (laughs) I'm curious, what was it like working um, at BuzzFeed? Uh, Well, you know, that was uh, that was like 2014. So that was like sort of the era where it was still, I guess, cool to work there. Uh, in the sense that, like, everyone was constantly. I had friends constantly asking me, like, "How do you get a job at BuzzFeed?" You know, and like, even I like tried very hard to get one. Um. I applied twice, and then I ended up with one. So, yeah, but I think that era's gone. I remember the. <laughs> I remember applying for a job there once, and it was one of the most bizarre job applications I've ever done. Um, they had, like, a management-style questionnaire that was truly weird. I mean, it involved, mm-hmm. like, maybe it involved mythical creatures. Oh, yeah. No, I just sort of had to do, like, um make some posts myself, you know, and okay. like their, 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 their application process is sort of like do free work for our website uh, that right. we can then promote and get hits off of. And then we'll decide if we want to hire you. But if we don't, at least we got clicks <laughs> from the thing that you wrote. So we've talked about this on my podcast, the fact that artists do all this pre-work in order to get uh, jobs and things. Somebody even suggested, uh, I think it was uh, Winston, my co-host, was suggesting that that actors get paid for auditions. Mm. You know, some people probably shouldn't be paid for them. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, th- I, think, I think that that is less involved, you know, not to, not to pit two people against one another because I am in SAG as well. But, right. um, you know, for, for writers, a lot of what we do is um, free work. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's not specifically an audition. It is, you know, if you're developing a TV show, you know, or you're, like, pitching on this film, you know, um, you end up doing, you know, like, weeks, sometimes weeks can turn into months, of, like, work in the hopes that, like, the company that you're working with will then take something and then sell it. Uh, and then you'll actually get paid for it. But, you know, we work on a lot of projects that sometimes just don't go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think writers, I think all the artists should get paid for their work, period. Absolutely. But, yeah. Um, so, you know, of course, uh, you are probably best known for being one third of Keep It, a podcast for Crooked Media. Although I think it was your show to begin with, correct? Yeah, and, and you yeah. brought in your friends, Lewis and Aida. Yes, um, the the show I developed with Crooked uh, in 2017. So we developed it for like a year, uh, a little under a year before it launched in 2018. Uh, and so we auditioned co-hosts and things, and Lewis joined um, in 2018. And Aida is a recent addition. Um, well, not recent; it's been a year and a half at this point now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It still feels recent because last year feels like it didn't happen. That's true. Uh, Oh my god, yes. that's true. What is yeah, that? Yeah, but we're in year four now, so yeah, and going strong. And you hit how many episodes? I think you hit a a big milestone recently, correct? Uh, I think one hundred and fifty. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
what is it what it, what it, in terms of development process like what are some of the things that went into development when you're doing a podcast with a co- when you're developing it with a company uh well so crooked it was mostly known for politics uh, and that was also before they launched all the podcasts that they have now, um, of which there were probably 80, 100. Uh, um, <laughs> but um, they were, you know, they were doing Politics of America. They had Love It or Leave It. Uh, and they wanted a show that was a pop culture show. Um, and I had guested on Love It or Leave It um, and a n- couple other pods that they have there. So um, afterwards, they were like, you know, we would love to develop a pop culture one with you. Uh, and that was just sort of um, figuring out the format of like how we wanted to present it because there were there's a lot of pop culture podcasts out there now. Obviously, there were right. slightly less four years ago, <laughs> but now there are a lot. Uh, so I'm sort of glad that we launched four years ago, you know, and weren't trying to do it now. But um, yeah, it was really just sort of like coming up with a way to give people conversations about stuff that they were already reading about that might inform them and also like make them laugh which it does it does all of those things it's a great show um i've worked as a writer on at least one program that was about the intersection of pop culture and politics when did you realize that that's where things were heading did did you or did you see that conversation happening all along in culture uh i think it's sort of a thing that you see happening all along um i could pretend that i you know, pinpointed that early on, um, but I really didn't. Uh, a lot of it is just sort of intuitive, and then you later, once you start really digging into, you know, how um, culture informs our politics and vice versa, um, you see that it's always been there. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I first started doing this, you know, in my like mid twenties, like I had no idea um, the depth of all of that. I mean, I think it really opened up a lot of people to the. I think that Donald Trump in, opened up mm. a lot of people to the idea that, you know, like pop culture and politics were in tandem, uh, even though, you know, like once you then start digging into that, you know, you learn that um, a lot of um, political movements are based on um, things that happen in culture. A lot of things that mm-hmm. happen, you know, um, voting wise or, you know, um, can mm. affect like the music and the books and the things that we read. So. Absolutely. Um, I have this theory that what that what we lived through was this, uh, or sort of more recently was this, you had talked about Donald Trump and it's like, but I also think like Twitter, like there was this thing that happened where it sort of flattened entertainers and politicians and journalists. Absolutely. In, into yeah. the same feed, right? Yeah. Before that, you have to be like, okay, well, you know, like hip hop music, you have to think, you know, sort of like, where did this come from? And you have to think about the people who are making that music, you know, specifically, you know, and like New York, like in the eighties, you know, and like the, um, sort of politics that, you know, like Reagan is, you know, like inflicting on, um, black communities, you know, Mm -hmm. like that is sort of born from that. And then you look at conservative responses to that, you know, like the Tipper Gore era, you know, with the sort of like, um, Mm -hmm. slapping, you know, like parental advisory things on uh, music and then how that splinters music into being like, how can we do this, you know, but make it more pop and marketable you know and it's sort of like there's always Ah, this ebb and flow um of anything and that's just one example but um twitter definitely became a space where it was like it's hard to ignore 
the connections between politics and pop culture because they're, they're, you see them in your feed. You know, if you follow comedians, if you follow Vanity Fair or GQ, and if you follow um, politicians and you follow reporters, like they're all coming through your feed at the same time and they're not really separated, you know, the way that like message boards used to be, right? So right, right. Once, once, you're, once your brain's taking in all of that at once, it's sort of hard to separate them in a way. And I feel like that's sort of why a, a lot of, you know, magazines and periodicals like used to be political anyway. Um, but now more so, you know, like every place seems to have like a political beat, even fashion magazines, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. And I think, like, it, it occurs to me that, like, all journalists now are trying to be comedians and, like, all entertainers are trying to be politicians. And it's like, or yes. the or, good ones are not, but a lot, a lot, a lot of them certainly are attempting the, that. The good entertainers are not politicians, or the good journalists aren't com comedians. Um, the good journalists aren't comedians. Some of them are funny, but they're not trying to be comedians. And the good politicians are not trying to be comedians either. It's usually the awful yes. politicians who are, you know, using sort of one of the worst things to happen to politics, uh, not just because of the Donald Trump era. You know, it's just also every politician now has, um, has this need to, like, deliver a clapback. Um, via quote tweet to anything that happens on social media now, and it is a headache. Yeah. But I'm not on Twitter anymore, so I don't see it. Yeah, I want to <laughs> talk about that with you. I feel like with Donald Trump, it's like his he was like comedy store energy. Yeah. And it's like that works at the comedy store, but you can't have someone flying the fucking plane who has that kind of fucking energy right yeah and a lot, you know and a, like a lot of them are just like conservatives trying to be funny and most of them are losers anyway so they're not funny in the first place uh <laughs> you know like ted cruz right. tweets like he's a stand-up comic you know like uh, right like working for drink tickets <laughs> that is the quality of those jokes yep definitely so you all launched in the midst of time's up and, uh, and around that same time, people were considering Oprah running for president herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was that was probably like our first episode. Yeah. Talking about Oprah running for president. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, I'm glad she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm very I'm very happy that we squeaked by here, but uh, I would have I would have taken Oprah any day. I mean, uh, I, I well, absolutely. I mean, you know, you take um, you know, a mannequin, you take the movie mannequin over <laughs> Donald Trump. The movie so. mannequin, right? Uh. <laughs> um, yes, you would. I need to go back and watch that movie. I feel like as a kid, when I saw that, that was a real fantasy. I feel like as a as a yeah, as a it's young, a classic. You as know, a young it's boy, just, it's just splash with a mannequin. Splash that to the mall. It's splash with a mannequin. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. So at the end of each of your episodes, uh, for anyone who already who doesn't already know this, uh, the trio lists their various keep its, um, and keep it is supposed to essentially mean like fuck off. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Where did that uh, come from? I used that like phrase on Twitter a lot, basically. Uh, I would, you, you know, talking about 
politicians quote tweeting things uh i would like use that with like a quote tweet of like a news story or like um some other tweet from someone uh and then you sort of like keep it um instead of having to like do some drawn out like joke or response you know like keep it was very succinct uh and then that sort of like took off in the sense that like people would tweet that and sort of like at me when they did it you know they would sort of be like keep it like ira would say uh and that is how the podcast came from as we were developing it and it was sort of like well i guess we got to call it keep it um yeah. which is great because i love that the phrase is now just a podcast and a segment on a podcast and i'm glad i wasn't didn't spend the past four years still tweeting that because um, would have felt probably a little dead inside continuing <laughs> to hammer home the same catchphrase you every could day. You know, you could trade market and you, you could trade market and then you could charge people if they use it. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. Know, know. <laughs> um, so your first episode, it was similar to, uh, I guess, well, in just in one respect, my first episode was short and yours was too. Yours was about 45-ish minutes. And then now mm-hmm. your episodes are two and a half hours sometimes. <laughs> are but, they? Uh, yeah, but that's like great. an hour but, and a half-ish. Yeah, but uh, I, No, I during like the it. beginning, they really wanted to keep our episodes down um because there was the idea that you know that like people like shorter content and then at a certain point i think i just like kept ignoring our producers who would say make it shorter or we kept making it longer and now we have people like people listen to it and it's longer i mean it's not like anybody else has anything else to do uh i don't i I never really know the um long versus short podcast thing you know because if like someone really wants to listen to it they'll listen to the whole thing, you know? And if mm-hmm. it's short, then it'll be too short for, like, the fans who want to hear you, you know? And especially if we're once a week, you know? Like, I feel like it should be substantive. Right. I agree. Yeah, and I like it. I like And I think that you're right. I mean, I'm betting on that as well. I have two guests on each of my episodes, and each interview is at least, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And I am betting on that. I'm putting them out once a week, and I'm betting on the mm-hmm. idea that people will pick it up and they'll they'll listen to the other person at some point, but I like it. I like that they're long. Um, they get more, I think like you get more intimate responses from people. You get, you get down to business. Eventually people will get down to business and talk about stuff that's real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, the beginning of interviews are always, you know, very, um, you know, small talk. Perfunctory. Yeah. Am I using that right? I I, think that's right. I don't know. Perfunctory (laughs) is not a word that, I throw in my wheelhouse. <laughs> I mean, you, you have words, so I don't know. <laughs> Perfunctory is, I think that's a, that's one I like saying, at least. It feels fun in okay. the mouth. You should use words you like saying, you know? <laughs> so you had you all had Don Lemon on your show recently. Um, which I thought yes, was we a, did. That was a great interview. Um, he's, was it? Yeah, oh, I don't know what. <laughs> tell me. Tell no, me I'd love to thoughts. hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I don't have any thoughts on it. What are yours? I first of all don't believe that you don't have thoughts, but on I that, do, but, it, but I'm I, I'm asking for yours. So one of the things that he said right away that I thought was fascinating is that he said he was afraid of you all. You're all on a <laughs> you're on a podcast. He's on CNN. Yeah. What was that moment like for you when he said? That? I mean, that's sort of like a jokey, self-deprecating thing that you say when you go on a podcast that you know has like made fun of you before or critiqued you oh yeah i mean our second episode was called when life gives you don lemons okay okay 
All right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so like our first episode was, you know, Oprah and like the, is she going to run for president? The second one was like Don Lemon just finally called Trump a racist and we were talking about right. him, you know? So it's like, um, it's been a very interesting year too of um, reminding you that everything's cyclical in culture, you know, like that's how our show started out. And now we just recently had our Don Lemon episode you know we talked yeah. about oprah and her influence on our first one and then just we just did had the a big bullet. one devoted to the harry and megan interview that's right you know yeah so people always stay within the same um storylines for lack of a better term um yeah but yeah i don't for a second believe that he's actually afraid of us but you know it was it was a thing you mentioned to let us know like oh i've heard the things you said about me they're kind of funny maybe but i'm gonna address it in this way you know so it's like a light-hearted like ha 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 you know like easing the tension okay all right fair enough i thought it was i, I enjoyed it there so there's a line in um the series mad men where uh which is where don draper somebody says about don draper he sees everything that comes mm-hmm. out, you know, in the movies and the and the TV. I feel like you have that same character trait. Do you you see a, a lot of stuff? Is that right? I do, I do. Um, although I think when you see a lot of stuff, it's easy for people to think you sort of see everything. You know, I do have eclectic taste, and I do have sort of like a wide breadth of stuff I'm interested in, whether it be. Um, different genres in film and TV, you know, or like books or like music as well. But um, I feel like I sort of stay within my, I've, I've, I've whittled it down to like the wheelhouse of like stuff I'm into. So I see a lot of things, but it is like the stuff that like you would mostly expect me to have seen. I feel like, you know, like not to talk about brands, you know, but I feel like when, when people are listening to Keep It, like they can sort of expect when a piece of pop culture comes out, like if I'm going to talk about it or not. You know, they're like, oh, that's a show that I was going to watch, et cetera. Uh, One of the most interesting things about living with Royce is that um, we have like a list of movies to watch. um, And there are things that like we either want to rewatch or things that I haven't seen or things that he's seen. uh, And it's and it's more it's funny to sort of see your sort of um, blind spots um, just sort of like laid out on a page, you know? Yeah, Royce. Yeah, we would challenge each other in a similar way. I think there were yeah. there was only one time I told him to turn something off. I couldn't yeah. keep watching it. It was a zombie thing, and it was so um, viscerally violent that I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Do it's it. weird, you know. Like I like violence in a sort of um. I don't know. It depends, you know. I'm but I'm very much like a um action like gang movie like like sort of violence like if people get sure. shot and like maimed and beaten up i can do that you hit, know hit like, with a telephone in the face a bunch of times yeah yeah i like that stuff too i can do that uh, but it depends you know but then i like some horror movies that are very violent and then i like some that aren't you know so i don't know I, yeah i'm the same way on horror i'm not the biggest horror fan but i do like things like the shining i like the th- what are the, the psychological horrors? I, yeah. I think a lot more than yeah. yeah. I liked even even the movie, the Hanukkah movie. Um, the the it was about the older couple. It won the Oscar, um, and it was all about love. It was called Love. I'm such I'm blanking on it right now for some reason. But it won uh, the Oscar. It, it won the Oscar. It was an older couple. She has a stroke, and she starts to she starts to deteriorate, and 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 he the husband's taking care of her while she's sort of. 
uh, deteriorating. And I don't know if you, how much Hanukkah stuff you've seen. Have you seen a lot of that stuff? The like the piano teacher and the funny games and oh, all that I've stuff? seen funny games. Yeah, well, he does both a lot versions. Of- he d- don't love. Okay, so he, I think, what the deal with him is that there's there's something that I think Americans share with the his storytelling is the sense that he's an Austrian born guy, and there's a lot of I guess what he thinks of as a lot of residual social guilt going on in that country. There certainly mm-hmm. is a lot here in ours, and um, but this particular piece uh, was fascinating in the sense that these these two people they get old and. And it, I think the movie is sort of a horror film about loneliness at the end of one's mm. life. So okay. Oh, um, amour. Thank you. The fucking okay. French word for love. Oh, yeah. the French word for love. Yeah, you were saying love, and I was like, mm, Simon. I don't know. Um, sorry. <laughs> right, right. Um, yes, yes. Amour. I saw years ago. You did say. Um, yeah. Haven't. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it was nominated. So yes, I had. For oh, for um, did it did, did did it win? I thought it won something. No, it was nominated for best picture. Did not win. Did not win. Did it win best? One best foreign language film. There it is. Okay. Yeah. So yes, did see that because it was nominated. So I was I've seen all, I watch all the nominated films each year. Um, so I definitely seen it. Sorry, it's not coming in my mind as much as Funny Games is, um, which. Which is also, you know, I don't even. Yeah, I don't even. I don't remember the begin. I don't remember the original one that much. I should probably rewatch that. I know I don't like the remake. The original I liked a lot. I didn't see the remake. Um, yeah. But it's devastating. I mean, it's just the. It's got some scenes in it that are. I mean, the kid. Is I just the sort of don't like things. Yeah, I just sort of don't like things that, like, at the end, is sort of like you know, um, tries to condemn the audience for like, for like taking part in like all this like violence and mayhem you know when like you created the violence and mayhem for us to go and watch you know so you sort of can't have it both ways i feel like <laughs> it's not my favorite kind of storytelling so, oh okay so you're saying so you don't like edgar Allan poe stuff anything that would make the reader complicit in the murder of somebody well, I think that that's different, though. It's like when it makes you complicit in the murder, it doesn't then end by saying, um, this is all your fault and this is why people kill each other because you enjoy stuff like this. It's not implied? No, I don't think I don't think that's implied in Edgar Allan Poe. Well, he does the first person thing. So he befriends you as the narrator right away. And then by the end, he's buried his neighbor in his wall or whatever. And you're, you were somehow an accomplice to that, right? I guess so, but I, I wouldn't find that Edgar Allan Poe is indicting his audience. No, okay, all right. I don't. No. I, to be honest, I don't know. He came out of the. Tra- he was like a transcendentalist, must have been right, or a romanticist. Yeah, I yeah. Know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't. You know, came t- out of that Telltale Heart. Telltale Heart. It's taking you inside the mind of this person. Mm-hmm. You know, like the first person works as a narrative structure, uh, and you. It's sort of unsettling, as you know, you feel like you are. Yeah, you know, almost accomplice to it. But I don't think that he at the end of the story is like, you know, the reason people kill people and, you know, bury them under floorboards is because you like to read stories about people being killed and put on the floorboards. <laughs> you know, there's there's complicit there's being complicit and then there's, you know, um condemning your audience. Okay. And I don't think Edgar Allan Poe does that. All right, fair enough. 
I'm, I'm not going to try to win an argument with you. Fuck that. No way. No, no thanks. <laughs> I wasn't trying to have an argument, you know. <laughs> or a dis- or You a- said you don't even know if it's true, so it's not even an argument. I'm just talking. <laughs> All right. So now I do want to talk about Twitter. I'm going to get to Twitter right now. Um, okay. So you are a, I'm not going to, and I'm going to frame it this way. You are now a, uh, an entry in a Snopes article. Yeah. And this article it's reads. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, I guess. It says, if you were scrolling Twitter on November 2nd, 2020, the evening before the U.S. general election, you may have seen a tweet that left you scratching your head. <laughs> Did former U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas really promise to, quote, drop my nudes <laughs> if his home state went blue in 2020? O'Rourke wrote no such tweet. It was a practical joke by television writer Ira Madison impersonating O'Rourke. Madison's Twitter account was suspended after he posted the tweet, but not before. Oh, whatever. We captured a screenshot. Hot. Um, you famously got suspended from Twitter. Are you suspended or are you banned? Well, I mean, they don't really have a ban. You know, like your, my account suspended. And I can't create a new one, which I guess is a ban, but it's technically called a suspension. What did Trump get? Did you get? Did this happen the same week it happened to Trump? Uh, I believe so. Amazing. No, no, his was after. I don't rec- No, his was after the election. After the election, because like he was pushing all of his like election conspiracies. So he his was after. So what? So is he? Ba- are you saying that he would also be? He's suspended and not banned. Well, I think the suspension and ban is the same thing. It's the same some, thing. Some suspensions are permanent, some are temporary. Uh, and yours is permanent? What the fuck? Why? How many I accounts out there do exactly that same thing where they impersonate, like, the Pope or somebody like that? Like, what Well, is a lot of them have gotten suspended, too, now, lately. You know, Jabuki did it a few times, but like, I remember after that. that, it was sort of like, um, you know, they have a no, they have a zero tolerance, tolerance. policy now. And yeah. that caught you, and not and not anybody yeah, it else caught before me. it. You know, it's for the best. Did he ever? Did his people ever? It was so funny. Did I mean? And by the way, and you followed it up by saying "s s grande," which is so fucking funny. First of all, was Royce with you when you did that? He was actually. Yeah, I can next hear. To me. I can hear his laugh while you're doing it, while you're tapping it. Um, yeah. Actually, no, he came upstairs after I had done it, but, you know, we were in the same house. He was sitting next to me the week prior. So the part of the suspension was because the week prior, I also did that um, by impersonating Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. And I was only suspended for like half a day. You said um, same, the same phrase, drop my nudes? No, no, not at no. all. I did, you know, that that um, meme that always pops up, uh, for example, with the, like, four Chris's, you know, it's always like, which one's got to go? Is okay. it, like, Chris Pye, Chris Evans, uh, Chris Hemsworth, and- or Chris Pratt? And it's always Chris Pratt, because right, duh. Right, right. Um, but it's always, like, one got to go. And so, like, I posted that as Amy Coney Barrett with um, – Obamacare, voting rights, um, Planned Parenthood, and um, gay rights, you know? So it was like, which one's got to (laughs) go? That's so funny. And what what happened? They sent you a warning? Yeah. And, like, I was suspended briefly. But also, I got a few more tweets out, too, 
that evening. You know, like I was tweeting at like Gwen Stefani, like can't wait to like officiate your wedding. You know, to like Shelton, <laughs> like I was on a spree that evening, uh, and so I think that they were sort of on alert because after the better one, uh, I was suspended within like fifteen minutes. Wow. Did he and his folks never reached out or anything? They didn't say no, as, as muy you know, grande I, or anything fun? No, I've heard through other people secondhand that he has, you know, found it amusing. But I've never heard from him. I mean, I would imagine that he would. I'd be kind of, I'd be surprised if he was, if he was as upset as Twitter was about it. But who knows? I, who knows? Um, well, it put you on, a, I think it put you on a lot of people's radar, uh, who I guess may, may not have known who you were before. Would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to be back on Twitter. So wh- how are you staying up to date? I mean, the one thing about, I'd like to get off Twitter too. I'm not successful at it at all. Um, but mm-hmm. I think the one thing that I, that keeps me on there is getting those up to the second updates about what's going on with news. Um, so how are you doing that these days? Do you have a burner uh, account? Well, I follow the news. So, yeah. you know, um, what some people might not know is if you follow some of the uh, outlets that you enjoy getting news from <laughs> and you have push notifications <laughs> for the news, you get them to your phone and you don't have to get them on Twitter first. And then you don't get to see people like having discourse about it. You just get the news. See, everybody, this is your way to get the fuck off that platform. Also, um, you can't, I mean, you can't be a person like my age, uh, a millennial, you know, with, with friends who are also just very online and like not see things that are trending on Twitter anyway. Right. You know, cause when something happens, you know, someone throws a tweet into the group thread and you see it, you know, so right. I see tweets all the time. I just don't have a feed anymore. Um, so you are, I'm going to take it. Uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit here. Uh, you are originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Is that correct? I am. What was it like growing up in Wisco? Cold. Yeah. I flew um, in there once and it was the most snow I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Wisconsin is very um, quaint. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've always had um, a weird relationship with a city, you know, mostly because like I didn't come out until college. Uh, and so Milwaukee always just felt very suffocating to me. Um, but I enjoy visiting it now. Yeah, I hear good things about. I hear, I've heard tell good things about Milwaukee that it's a can be a fun town. Did you and you? No, the the the. I mean the the beer's great. You know, um, yeah. the bars are great. You know, um, I love the um, Wisconsin old fashioned. Um, hold on, one second. Let me get that recipe. It is. You, um, you're talking about a cocktail. Yes, you know, because uh, so traditionally, uh, instead of uh, Wisconsin Old Fashioned uses brandy. Ooh, I've had Old Fashions with brandy and they're great. Yeah, so that's sort of like a thing in Wisconsin. Like, like if you ask for an Old Fashioned, like it's made that way. Mm. And so, and you're, and you started, this is when you started to like become a pop culture fanatic. Would you say, I don't want to use, I'm, fanatic is a weird word, but you went to, fanatic. I heard it, I heard you say like the that MTV show, <laughs> a fanatic with a PH. Um, but I think that I think you had said like you started. To, you would just go see movies. Like you'd see anything, anything that was playing. Yeah, it didn't no, matter if it I'm, got a bad review. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, how much acting did you do when you were uh, in high school? N- not a lot at all. Uh, I I sort of like 
phrased this as like, you know, like since I didn't come out to college um, and then even later, you know, become comfortable, you know, with sort of like myself in general um, and within my own body. Uh, I probably was not the best at like trying to take on other personas like in acting, you know, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. school. Uh, and that, and that what, and writing was sort of like my escape, you know, sort of like to mask a lot of my insecurities and like acting had never been that. Um, so none of that really happened. To, I did like some things here or there. Like I was in Hello Dolly. Um, Fine. But, you know, it wasn't until college when I did theater, because I did a BA in theater at Loyola Chicago. And so the BA means that, you know, you are not concentrated in a specific thing, you know, like acting or directing or playwriting, you know, they make you do everything. Mm-hmm. So that was when I really started doing more acting in college. My cousin did that same program. Um, at Loyola? Yeah, at Loyola mm-hmm, in Chicago. Oh. And he did, uh, he's a playwright. And um, when did he graduate? He's gotta be he's much older than me so he's almost he's sort of i would say he's like getting close to 50 years old now oh okay long before i went there before but i remember you know and i do remember that he would talk about a particular i can't remember the name of this guy john something maybe it was a theater critic from chicago that was like notorious um that he had a bit of a writing relationship with and somebody who started to Mm. champion some of his writing but um but I'm curious about that too. So, so was that because I've heard you talk about theater? Uh, you know your theater very well. W- were you starting to go see stuff at like the Goodman, Steppenwolf, Victory Gardens? Like, were or were you going mm-hmm. over to Second? You're probably City? Think, it's probably meant John Simon. Um, yeah, I think that's right. The theater critic. He died like in 2019, and he was um, a tough before the pandemic. Yeah. He was a tough dude, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I. You know, I miss that era. Of my life, um, you know, because I um, theater is is what it is in L.A., you know, and like if you want to see something, you got to go like downtown or like to the west side, you know, yep. to like to, to see something that's like a bigger scale, yep. you know, and I, what I really, really appreciated about living in Chicago was, you know, like, yeah, I could see. You go to like Steppenwolf or the Goodman, but you know, then there's also like Congo Square Theater Company, which I did some work for, you know, Victory Gardens, you know. Um, yeah. Like, there's a lot of different places to see like shows there, you know, than I, and I wish there were more of, wish there were more of that here. Did you, you and you were writing plays? What were, what did end up being your focus? Did you write more? Did uh, you? Uh, I was writing more on the side because unfortunately we had like one playwriting class at Loyola. So there wasn't really a thing that they were that, they cared that much about. Uh, and the professor was an asshole. So. <laughs> well. Yeah, that happens. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that until much later that he was sort of like a playwright slash actor whose shows were always being panned um, by uh, theater yeah. critics. So, of course, that translated him to being an asshole, as an a angry professor. asshole. But yeah. but I didn't realize that then. You know, you never really realize that until like later. So he would do a shutting. He would shut people down in the creative process and be like, "This sucks." Yeah. And- yeah, I mean, I think generally creative, like there's no faster way to 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 sort of stunt somebody's creative growth than to than to to shut them down as opposed to being like, OK, this is the start of something. It could go somewhere new. It's You know, it can be devastating yeah. to just say that. Sucks and absolutely, or, you know, my weakness is excess, um, you know, uh, um, you mean in your writing, you know, like writing a in, lot in, 
in in my in my art in anything you know it's always too much of something uh and then i always scale it back you know but you know i always say um everything in moderation except for moderation I love it. That's a Real Housewives tagline <laughs> from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Thank you for um, putting but, <laughs> art, art on their name. But, um, no, you know, like I specifically remember, like, not even just that, you know, like, we did, like, a production once of um, a bunch of us directed plays from Susan Laurie Parks' um, 365 Days, 365 mm. Plays project. Yeah. And I did one that was sort of, like, some Adam and Eve scene. Uh, and I, like, had the idea to, you know, like, fill the entire black box theater with, like, apples. Amazing. Which was nonsense. Um, you, you know, because it's like, so what is, what is you know, the correlation here and, like, the story you're actually trying to tell? It's just, like, a lot of stuff. But... I constantly felt like sort of like the critiques I would get, you know, weren't weren't really getting to like the core of like, how do you connect your vision here to the story you're trying to tell um, so that it's clear to your audience, you know, and also thematically it makes sense, you know, and you're, you know, um, sending a real message, you know, uh, and like a lot of the critiques were just sort of like, this was a lot, you know, don't do that, you know, and I feel like it wasn't really conducive to uh, my... Um, development as an artist which is why I'm, I'm much much more appreciative of everything that i learned about writing when i went to graduate school at um nyu you know so i went to tish for um the dramatic writing program and um that i think you know was a much much better um environment to um try and sort of um and fail um, and, you know, succeed as well, you know, within those failures. And, you know, Loyola, weirdly, you know, it was like, like your failures were just sort of like um, put on you, like a, like a scarlet letter, you know? And it was like unfortunate too because like the end of the year always ends with like four students get um, directing slots. You know, there are four main stage plays and then there's four black box plays that four seniors do. Mm. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate because it's sort of like by the second, year by sophomore year you sort of see like which students have been christened as you know they're going to be picked to be those four people to do that right you know so it's sort of pointless to even bother trying um anything that you do um because you know because it's like well i'm not going to get this slot you know and it's it's a little now i feel like as an adult and like knowing what i know uh i feel like that would be more freeing because i'd be like cool a lot of the stuff that they did you know was very like basic and you know like didn't like swing for any fences and you know like um, didn't try to fail and then become better out of that failure you know like i would have felt freedom and being like well now i can do whatever the fuck i want right um but unfortunately you know when you're like 19 20 you know that's this very defeating to know that like uh anything you do is sort of like pointless because you're not one of um you know the head of the department's um favorites that's fascinating insight yeah yeah i don't know you know i just sort of like and maybe it's not all graduate programs you know i'm sure a lot of them are cutthroat but you know i just felt like um ours was a bit more democratic um in trying to foster everyone's creative process and I felt like specifically undergraduate at Loyola was very much a um the hunger games <laughs> which is unnecessary because it's like it's it's an undergraduate theater program in Chicago when there's a lot of those 
you know, and then like a lot of people can go out to get work after, mm -hmm. you know, um, but you know, how about in the confines of school, you know, you sort of treat people better. Well, there's no, yeah, because there's so much rejection that happens in the professional world that, you know, it, but the idea that you need to start people on that in school, I think it might be, I think you are right in the sense that it's a flawed philosophy because, um, uh, what I will say is the people that I've observed coming up uh, alongside me, like I, you, I never, I've learned, I learned at some point, like never assume who you think is going to have the career or is going to develop, even just as an artist is going to grow and do something amazing. You know, I don't think that it's, you, you can never really count a person out so long as they are in it and still doing it. Something amazing can happen is, has Absolutely. been my feeling. Um, I'm glad that you uh, had a better experience at NYU. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I went there undergrad with Royce uh, in the Tisch program and the acting program. The I, I wanted to know if you had done the dramatic writing program. That's the one that I think Tony Kushner did, right? Yeah. Did he? Probably. I think he, I think he went Columbia New, in New York City undergrad, and then I think he went NYU uh, dramatic writing graduate school, I think. Um, cool. Well, then I hope I do at Angels in America at some point. <laughs> I hope everyone does one of those. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll actually, you know what, I'll, 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 um, I'll accept a Carolina change. <laughs> I think I heard which, you which say I, you Which I prefer that. watching. Yeah, I think I heard you say that you love that play. Um, yeah, it's it's easier to get through, and it's a musical. I'm very excited for your uh, <laughs> for your upcoming project. Uh, um, uh, I wish you well with your writing, and uh, love Thank your you. love your show. I just want to say this has been great. Thanks so much for for the chat. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope we get to meet in real life soon and hang out. I'm sure we will. Um, in the meantime, I wish you safety, continued success, and good health. Oh, thank you. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Ira Madison III. A big thank you again to Ira for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Kevin Avery, Corbin Reed, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, and Shelley Bala coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram page at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Brendan McDonald. We talk about life in New York City during a pandemic, his work as a senior producer on MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes. We chat about the origins of the WTF pod in the offices of the old Air America Liberal Radio Network, the history of podcasting and the roots of a lot of its success in the L.A. comedy scene. It's a fascinating interview about the podcasting world, and he's also my nephew. Not really, but we explain in the interview. Here is the brilliant, thoughtful, and funny Brendan McDonald. So how you doing, man? I'm good, Claude. Um, it's nice to see you. 
It's great to see you too. Um, how is uh, how's your how are things going with your lockdown over in Brooklyn? Lo- life is, is like yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Uh, as I've lived here for 20 years now, this is the 20th year in the same neighborhood. Like I've never I've moved from different places, but within the same like three blocks, and um, and it's been now we're you know we're a year in, and so it's like. If you're not used to this by now, then that's on you. Like you've got, you've got to really, you've got to work really hard to feel like this is not life. Like this is what life ah, is. Okay. We do it this way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're just we're we're going on. It's it's. I mean, I, I I can't I can't imagine doing anything differently in the last year that I have done. So like I'm pretty at peace with it. Like okay, yeah, we're gonna stay home. So you're so. Are you basically saying that not 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 too much was different for you? I mean, not it's definitely different to have a kid in the house doing school here every day. Oh my day. gosh! Yeah, yeah. How but old is your oldest? Do you, do you have be, more than one kid? I just have one, and he'll be ten uh, in May. What is ten so. like? Because my oldest is four, my youngest is one and a half now. Ten. ten it's actually ten been like? it's actually been cool because you're you're in a phase where you know they're developing some autonomy. They're um, more or less set in their uh, uh, preferences and opinions on things, but they're not yet teenagers, so they're not complete assholes about it. Like they're, what, what if your four-year-old can be, <laughs> I don't want to say the word asshole is strong, but what if your four-year-old feels like they have autonomy already and can be prickly? I think that the, the one thing you have as a leg up on that is that there are a million things they don't know how to do, right? So like you can... Basically, like you, you have Paw Patrol hostage to them, right? Whatever. <laughs> a like little bit. Yeah, Although in this like, time, he's figuring out the the Apple remote pretty, oh, pretty. That's true. I, I didn't realize that there's a, an adaptation going on. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, they've spent they're spending a little bit more time in the house. It's it's sad about the increased screen time. Uh, but we it's too, we we're both parents who are working. You know, sure. so we we've been able to put him into. Um, uh, a program here or there that is doing like masks the whole time that is a sort of a not a uh, you know sort of a daycare which is not run by the LAUSD right. um, and we everybody has been safe at the school and he's been safe so we've been lucky a little bit to get a little bit of time for him to go and uh, be outdoors with a mask on with other right. people but but yeah he's getting much more sophisticated quickly with the with the all the uh, entertainment stuff um so, uh, but please continue. So what, so he, so he's, uh, what does autonomy mean at 10? Well, like, you know, I, I can basically, my wife and I, we can both just like have a day where we know, okay, he's doing a thing. Like he's, we're in like three separate spheres in the house, you know, all trying to take care of our stuff. And I imagine it would be much harder with a younger kid or an older kid. Like, I feel like he's in a sweet spot where you can be like, yeah, you go and do that. And then I know you're going to like play Nintendo and eat, you know, some pretzels. Uh, and then you'll be like, okay, when's dinner or whatever. And it's, you know, I don't have to worry about like, all right, did I, is that kid going to die? Like maybe make sure that I, the knives are away. Right. Like he's not going right. to touch those. And then at the, on the flip side, it's not like, is he, you know, in his room on like a chat message board thinking about storming the Capitol? Like, I, I don't have to worry <laughs> yeah, about that. God. I mean, right? hopefully at 10, that's not happening. So it sounds yeah. more like a shared workspace. I think so. I think we're all, we've, <laughs> we have definitely all been working. That's for sure. For sure. Um, 
Well, great, man. And you're so you're you're not feeling uh you're not feeling the wall that people are talking about so much. No, I mean I feel the I feel the pull, if you want to put it that way. Like there's a there are there are pangs of things, obviously, yeah. that I'm like, boy, I really would like to what are you most do, do looking forward again. to doing again as soon I, as possible? It is very hard to live here in New York City and not enjoy New York City. Yeah. And I've 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 lived I've lived here most of my life. I had a, you know, went to high school in upstate New York, um, but uh, I grew up in uh, Queens and then I went to college in the Bronx. And now, as I said, I've, I've lived in Brooklyn for 20 years and I've, I've, been, I've been a Manhattanite worker. So like, I, I just know the city very well and feel the city in my heart. And that's at all times, at all seasons. Like I'm not a I'm not a person who leaves, you know, in the winter or something. Like I like the cold. I like I like mm, you yeah. know the I like the seasonal changes. And I just like walking around and going in stores and, you know, buying a drink here or buying a, a record here or just, you know, I, I, I enjoy the 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 fruits of, of the city's labor. And not having that is a bummer. Um yeah. I feel like you know, sometimes people bring up stuff like, Do you miss like hanging out with people or this or that. And it's like, I, I, yes, to an extent, but it's not like I don't, I, I'm in contact with the same people I've been in contact with my last 10 years of my life every day, you know, whether it's like, we're having text conversations or I'm meeting with them like this on a, on a zoom call or something. I, I just, there's, there's not like this real sense of isolation from other people other than the physic from the physical sense. Um, yeah. So it's, it, that's been manageable. That's a lovely thing to say about where you live. I think so. You're not going to be one of those people who goes down to Florida later at some point. No, you know what? I my dream is. I was telling Dawn this, and I I need to get her on board. Is that I really just want us to. I don't want to go to Florida, and I don't want to like ever like abandon New York. I, I'm a I'm opposed to that. Yeah. Like I kind of I kind of want to I want to see it through here like till my end. Like, I want to see, like, what's going to be like here? You want to see what happens at the end of your, you want to be there for, you don't want to miss a minute. Yeah, yeah. I'd like, I'd like like the full arc of like, I I was, I came into New, I came into my being, like, right as New York was pulling out of like the 70s tailspin, you know, like, like the, 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 the fire hydrant across the street from my apartment I grew up in was still painted red, white, and blue from the bicentennial. Wow. And I, I always yeah. remember seeing that as a kid, you know, like 1982, 1983. And I'd be like, man, that, that must have been so cool. It was like a party for America right here in New York. And then I got older and found out what the 70s in New York were like. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad I wasn't around for that. That sounds <laughs> like it sucked. I remember visiting uh, in New York uh, as a kid. And I remember the thing that was, I remember being told like, um, I remember hearing that somebody had been, killed over a pair of like sh- nike shoes i think that was a story oh. i remember so i remember as sure. i remember being a kid maybe five years old walking on and i i grew up a little bit in uh, brooklyn heights for, but just for about a year when i was very 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 young i've, I've moved uh-huh. a lot in my life but but going back there i think age four five six we were my dad was doing a little bit of work in new york for a few years and doing a commute to boston if you can believe that and right. wow. um I just remember walking down the street and remembering that story that somebody had been killed over a pair of shoes. Shot. Yeah. Yeah. There was, we, when I, I, I would walk to school and there was a lot of, you know, New York city tabloid driven boogeyman stuff 
about like you know stories that would come out or, like that right. yeah 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 cherry so, picked maybe yeah yeah so it was there was a lot of like uh, a sense of there's this was a dangerous place but then i just never saw it so i was like i i don't know i became distrustful of that narrative okay and then i just have seen like every every type of like ebb and flow here and so yeah going back to what i was saying it's like i do want to <laughs> i do I, I i would feel really lousy if i bailed on that somehow yeah uh, so you weren't so the 80s for you in new york city that was not so not so scary as as maybe it would seem to others i do remember ad rock maybe on your on your podcast talking about getting on the subway at age like eight nine uh with his buddies walking by a park on the way home and somebody in the park, literally an older person, literally saying like, I'm, I'm going to kill you. I guess he's like eight getting off the subway and going home. Could you imagine like, is your 10 year old taking the subway or, or when he was younger, well, was he yeah, going? He, he was never, but I mean, obviously like no, we haven't been taking the subway now. No. And when he was younger, you know, he was not like a year ago and beyond that he was not at an age where he was doing it by himself. But he, ta- we like, I mean, we would take the subway maybe once a day. You know, it was like a regular thing to be on the subway. Like, he's definitely grown up on subways. He's grown, it's an interesting thing. He has grown, and then New York now is not like it was in the 80s, but he has grown up with an awareness of like, hey, maybe don't stand so close to that person. You know, like, <laughs> there's a sense of, like, we, we've been, we've actually had to try to teach it to him explicitly of, like, hey, when you're down here, you do have to be looking around. Like, yeah, yeah. I remember one time we were on a subway platform and there was a person acting erratically, you know, a mentally disturbed person or whatever. And it was the kind of thing where because you're on a New York City subway platform, no one's making a big deal of it. So... It's yeah. reliant upon you yeah. to pick up the context clues. And we said like, hey, why don't we go walk over here? You know, like, and, and he was like, why? Why are we going over here? What's, go- what's over here? Is it-? And when we got over there, we were like, well, look, we're, we're not, we're not uh, being fearful of this, but there's a person over there who looks like they, they might, you know, be having a little trouble. And you got to be aware of that. And, and as we're like in the middle of saying that, that person starts on like, a freak rampage <laughs> against some passerby, you know, who walked by them. And, and then our train come and we got, we got on and we were like, yeah, you see, you kind of have to know, like, yeah. <laughs> there's a zone around you at all times and make sure you're aware of that zone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, the, I will say for my experience with New Yorkers has always been that, uh, well, I'll, I'll just, you know, the, the, it was the way that I saw the community come together uh, I guess after 9-11 was the, you, you, it was the best it was the most beautiful kind of humanity that I, I've ever experienced uh, collective humanity I mean the For people sure. uh, that town acted like one big family and um, you know and then and then there was that blackout that was only a couple of years later and you, you saw the same thing happening you saw people in the middle of the street helping to direct traffic yeah. And taking care of each other. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, but I guess I, I wonder about New York because you did talk about the seventies and I also, I guess I thought uh, similarly the eighties must've been a, a more scary time when you were growing up there, but, uh, but, but, um, but a wonderful city nonetheless. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's, and now it's just like, uh, I, I consider it like 
one of the great places in America to raise your kids and to just, uh, you know, there's there, the, the benefits of it are, are, are vast. So yeah. I, you know, so, so you and I know, uh, we know each other through our friend, uh, Billy Savage. That's um, right. And for some reason I call you uncle and I don't even know why that is. <laughs> They're, like I've, I've just always not, uh, I've talked to be talking to Bill. I'll be like, how's uncle. And that's, you know, and, and then I don't know why, I, why I've ever started calling you that, why he, you know, had me calling you that you're just uncle. Yeah, I am. I'm uncle Claude. And I don't know. I don't know where it came from either. You know, he, For I, was real? Gonna, I was actually going to ask you the same thing. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I'm not quite sure. I think my best recollection of it was that he was telling his friends, uh, yourself and Batistic and uh, folks like Doug DeBeach that like he was living with it. He had a new roommate and it was something about it, it, he was living with his his uncle because there was an aunt as well. Right. Isn't oh, there okay. wasn't there Aunt Millie? Who's Aunt Millie? I think I think he had an Aunt Ginny or G- Aunt Jenny, I think it was his aunt, but, but, but I do, I, I, you know, having no idea of the origin of this, what, what it sounds like to me was that he was probably getting shit for living with someone and people were like, oh, what are you living with your uncle? Like you living in your uncle's basement or something like that. And, and he said, yeah, my uncle Claude, I I have (laughs) no idea if that's true, but that's how I can imagine it happening. Yeah, it sounds like Bill. Um, yeah. So, so we've known each other for a long time now. Now, are you, are you still, are you producing for All In with Chris Hayes over at MSNBC? Are you still doing that job? Yeah, I'm still on the payroll there. I mean, I guess I, I am a producer for them. I, uh, uh, I know I've, I haven't since 2013, which was literally like eight months into the run of that show. Uh, I haven't been in the building. I haven't been part of the daily uh, uh, in-person staff on that show, producing the live show at night. Um, and it was just, you know, like I, I was basically doing, I was, I was working in television uh, right when I started the podcast with Mark. Um, and I, 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 I got, it got to a point where the podcast grew beyond like a thing I could do as a hobby or as a side gig. And I had these two massive full-time media jobs and and like one of them had to scale back and got it um and I, I i wound up uh arranging a situation where i could do some work for them every day but from home and uh and and i did that for quite a while then i started then chris hayes started his own podcast and i started producing that so i've just always kind of worked with them since i left in 2013 uh as a you know remote producer uh, working primarily on, on their show prep and mm. uh, for their eight o'clock uh, PM show. And then, and then on the podcast. So when you're doing show prep, you, is that including uh, research, locking down interviews? Is it that kind of thing? It's much more simple than that. It's, it's uh, you know, they're an 8 PM show they're off the air at nine. Uh, you know, the turnaround on live daily cable news is, is pretty harsh. And so I'm basically like a prep producer in the morning for them that they can wake up and they have a note from me that says, here's all the stuff going on today. Here's what you might want to cover. Ah, and then okay. we have a phone call that's like an editorial meeting where we discuss and then they go about and like I, I literally my process ends there as opposed to, you know, where I used to be a 
senior producer on the actual show and getting it to air every day. I, I don't do that anymore. And then, you know, the rest of my day is basically filled in with the podcast. Got it. Okay. Um, so you got, so you're basically, you're producing, uh, this podcast. You're also, and you know, much more well known, uh, to, to the public at large as Mark Marin's executive producer. I love that you say I'm much more well known. I, I would say like to maybe 10 people I'm known <laughs> as that. Yes. Uh, well more than 10, but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the WTF podcast, one of the earliest and still one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Um, you know, I think it's important for me to say here up top, I'm a fan of Mark's and his podcast that I put him up there with uh, Conan, I think, in terms of influence generally for changing comedy in specific oh, wow. mediums, podcasting and late night show, respectively. There are others, of course, but uh, but these I, I would say these are those are my guys. Wow. And the majority of these questions are, are, are basically me trying to be cool about that. So not to be too embarrassingly fawning. But good news for you. I, I am not Mark Marin. You can say whatever you want and I won't be embarrassed by it or I won't be. I, yeah, it's fine. Well, if he hears any of this, which he won't, but if he does and he doesn't like something, it's because I overcompensated in the other direction in order to come off cooler than I am. So I'm sorry, Mark, in advance. Um, but I think, you know, like one of the things about uh, Mark that uh, I think was important to me is that at a certain point, I felt like I had discovered all the all my kind of like older guys mm -hmm. that were important to me growing up. Um, and I think that, you know, it was folks like, you know, maybe like Conan, there was, you know, in the acting realm, someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, mm -hmm. It was that generation, though. Uh, and Mark was a late find, but he's, I guess these are all Gen Xers. Is that, am I right? There are all these I guys in their I think 50s. so. I mean, Mark's age is, is on the tail end of like a boomer, uh, uh, generation, um, uh, bubble. But I, I would think he, as a person fits into like an older Gen Xer more appropriately like he missed the 60s you know he yeah. was i think he's born in 63 or 62 or 63 63 and um so he's you know really coming of age in the 70s and uh you know really is as a as a as a person in the late 70s and early 80s so i i think you would say yes there's a heavy gen x influence i mean he and i are what are we a uh 15 year a 16 year separation between and are you, the two are of you us. a gen xer i yeah I, I definitely would associate myself that way i was born in 79 so um but like yeah i would i i i would absolutely say that the two of us are on the like t each end of like the gen x bubble and we probably relate to each other well within that uh cohort got it yeah i'm an elder millennial or whatever so the like, fuck. Is that really like, it's like anyone born after 1980? Yeah, I was 81. Right. So I okay. think like I'm a, I'm cuspy. There's another yeah, term for us too. That's it's, the thing with the cusp stuff. It's almost yeah. like, it's like the idea of being a New Yorker or being a Los Angelino. It's like, there's some people with like these very strict rules on what it is. And then there's other things. Like for me, I'm like, no, you're a New Yorker. Like if you were here through like 9-11 and you stayed. Like that's the, uh -huh, right, that's a New right. Yorker, right? Like, or, or, or like, you know, if you have generations of family that are from New York and you like were visiting them your whole life and then you, maybe you lived here as an adult, like that's a New Yorker, you've got it. And I, I just feel the same thing with like, 
th- these uh, uh, generational um, demarcations. It's like, I know some people probably born in like 1980 or 81 who I'm like, oh, but that's an old soul. Like that's, that's a person who like, you know, sure. probably because yeah. they had older siblings or something like that's a full on like Cameron Crowe uh, Gen Xer. Okay. You know? All right. So you don't put too much stock in the, in the, the labeling. I don't. All right. I don't. All right. Fair enough. I remember. So I met Mark once with you, which you were kind enough to have us. Uh, again, Bill and I, we came and watched you guys give a, a, a do a live talk. Oh, and uh, and I ended up shaking Mark's hand. I got to say uh, a memorable handshake. Oh, that's that's wild, because I'm glad that you had that because and, and this is not me like uh, dishing on him. This is something he would say. Uh, himself has said himself many times like probably the worst time to meet him uh, is, is that one of those things right it was just any performance he gives like right after it he's almost in like a trance state like he's <laughs> yeah, yeah it's yeah. very sure. hard for him to be uh, present he's thinking about a, what he just did yeah and it's also yeah. it's like you're, there's a come down effect from it you know you've just been up there like he's he I, I would also assume, like, I, I can tell that that happens, like, for me when I do, and I've done, like, you know, a dozen things like that with him, and I can tell that it happens. But for him, who's, who is, you know, so used to living his life on a stage and doing a performance and then walking off, like, it's got to be a, a, a thing in his brain chemistry that reacts a certain way to, like, okay, it's over now, right? Like, flush everything out. Like, you can stop the, the, the adrenal glands. You can, <laughs> like, I can have a little dopamine drip. I'm going to go have my ice cream or whatever it is to have that, like, come down. Especially, like, a guy like him who's, you know, recovered from drug and alcohol addiction. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to have to do those things anymore. So give me all that natural stuff so that I can, right. you know, even out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that, I mean, I'm talking just the physical act of the handshake itself. He, he's he got a, a certain, I, I don't remember very many handshakes. I remember his and I remember oh, cool. uh, Ed Asner of all people. Oh, wow. They both that, have I, a similar. I feel like Ed Asner, I can, I can like guess his handshake. What do you guess about Ed Asner's handshake? I'm like, curious. Like a stout Yep. Uh, uh, like you, you know, one pump maybe. You're not getting. You're not getting a lot of a, a lot of uh, uh, wiggles. The, like you just yeah. get the stout one pump, and that you're you're good. Nice bear paw. It was yeah, bear paw is exactly right. He's bigger than you think he would, particularly because you think about an older person and you you know uh, older generation person. I'm gonna say cover yeah. my bases here. Um, and he is, uh, but he's a he's a, still a large dude. And yeah, it was a it's a it's a strong, intimidating. A wonderful handshake. Mark's was uh, also a big hand, but very, very soft, as I recall. <laughs> like a, just hey. a very soft and very comfortable. Like you could just slip right into that handshake, uh, like a, like a, like a, like the sheets of a, well, of a, I'm sure of a like hotel the, bed. There's some contour to holding a microphone for most of your life that, that, that probably, <laughs> you know, makes it makes it easier on the hand. I don't know. You'd assume it'd be more calloused, but it was just delightful. <laughs> Just delightful. Um, so I feel like every American has been going through. Uh, uh, I don't have to feel this. Every American has been going through an extraordinary time under this lockdown and the health crisis. Uh, and on top of that, Mark had this horrific tragedy occur in his life after the sudden and very sad passing of his partner, the beloved director, Lynn Shelton. Um, how's Mark doing these days? 
Um, he's, he's doing good in the sense that, you know, he's, he, as you just said, he had a hell of a challenging year. And so the fact that he's, uh, ambulatory and, uh, you know, not completely fallen into himself and has, uh, reasons to live every day and is, and acknowledges those, like, to me, that's a win. And yeah. he's, he, he had, um, you know, despite being on his own and, um, you know, we were in the midst of, you know, a really terrible time in, in the, in, in, in the virus spread, this was back in May when, uh, when, when we lost Lynn, he had a really great support system. You know, it was a lot, it was, um, immediately clear that, um, the guy who started the podcast under the pretense of, you know, basically he was down and out. He had kind of burned a lot of bridges and he um, was maybe, you know, he was at his own like personal bottom, not just a career bottom, but like in the sense that like there weren't a ton of people rooting for Mark Marin back mm. then. Mm. And yeah. uh, it was a real testament to how he has evolved and changed as a person um, over the, you know, 11 plus years of doing the podcast that so many people uh, were there to help him and support him and offer their strength to, to kind of keep him going. Um, and yeah, it was like a lot of people that he's really, you know, he's met and gotten to know, um, you know, in the last decade in, in, in kind of in, in the, the arc of his um, later career here, it's, uh, it's, it's really something he can't divorce from his actual life. Um, the way he's, he's he's changed his career track like this guy he is this podcaster um he he's a he's a person who is connected with a lot of people some of that's the people he has as guests on the show and um, the vast majority is this parasocial relationship he has with people who are listening who care for him deeply and that's, yeah uh, you know that's that that's that was a lot of support was just strangers total strangers just being like we love you we care about you and uh, we're listening. We're listening to you. That's wonderful to hear. He's a he's a very open book. Uh, yeah. In terms of discussing what's going on in his life, um, did he put out episodes that week? We we didn't do uh, new episodes until the week after, but he did okay. put up a uh, remembrance of Lynn. Um, his know, in interview. Place of, what we yeah he he put yeah. her the the first interview that he did with her back in uh twenty fifteen and and he did a um introduction on there that was very you know he was only it was only two days after she had passed so it was so completely raw and yeah. he you know I I had said to him like you you literally can do whatever you want like you have this is this is completely within your um you know, prerogative to hand, how to handle this. And I have cleared the deck, you know, we don't have any obligations toward advertisers or toward guests or, you know, air date commitments, nothing like that. So yeah. we can, we can do nothing. We can end the podcast. We can, we can put reruns up for a month. We can, we just, I, I said, so it's up to you. Did you talk about, did he talk about ending the podcast? No, 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 never. I mean, he, not only did he not talk about any of the podcast, like, he was pretty adamant, like, by the end of that 
first week like okay what's monday's show like we're gonna go yeah. back to doing it so yeah and i you know i feel like that's been it's that's been true not just uh in the immediate aftermath of something tragic like that and in the enduring the grief that he's been processing uh but also just throughout the pandemic and the the difficulties that we've all had to kind of inherit in mm. the in the pandemic the the doing the podcast twice a week has been important it's been a constant it's been a kind of uh release valve um and it's also we're we're both super grateful for it we like we didn't have any disruption in our professional lives uh you know other than having to adjust a little bit in how we recorded the show and it doesn't have many people coming over to do the show live anymore but that's nothing you know like Mm. with a small production shift like that is that's part of the job anyway so um, you know, we're, we're both extremely grateful that we could just keep doing this and, and that people are still listening and people are now actually getting something out of it that they might not have been getting before. Like there really is this, uh, engagement that we see from listeners, uh, that, that feels fairly new, that feels different, um, uh, because of everyone's desire to connect right now. It's been helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, during this period of time to be able to check in and, and uh, hear, I guess, uh, uh, his voice, hear him working through, like he always does, the things that are going on in his life and also mm-hmm. to sort of the way in which he reaches out to his listeners just on the mic. Um, I think you have both talked at different points about wanting to take it, just completely quit everything. <laughs> is, is there going to be a time? Do you, do you, how, how long do you think you'll both do this podcast? Uh, you, well, you're already into the thousands of interviews. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it's like, we've, we've talked about that in the sense of like, you know, oh man, it would just be nice to be done with everything someday. But then we always come back to like, well, but even if we were done and like, you know, you move to like a, you know, Tahiti or something, you just got the hell out of Dodge and you're like completely off the grid. You could still do this podcast. Like, especially now as we've had experience uh, with doing almost all remote interviews, as opposed to the way we used to do the show and kind of insist on people coming to Mark's garage. Uh, I, I think that like neither of us see any end to this anytime soon, mostly just because there's no reason to like, it's not like the show has uh, worn out its welcome. It's not like we are grinding our gears against things that we haven't done before or, or, or you know, repeating things. Uh, I mean, just yesterday we interviewed Eddie Murphy. Like, it's like, oh, that's exciting. I, I would never imagine that would have happened in my life ever. Like, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I just don't see a reason for us to stop and Mark doesn't either. He, he just, you know, it's, I, I think we, we all, fit, we, you know, have acknowledged that we're probably closer to the end than we are to the beginning, considering that we started this in 2009, but we don't go through day to day, month to month, year to year thinking, well, this is the last one of these. This is the last year. Or yeah. This is the last month that we're in the final stretch or whatever. Well, I wish him well. I hope that he's doing okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that there's a there's almost kind of a a, a Truman Show uh, component to. I know you've described what he does as being kind of like this is kind of his journal, yeah, with guests, uh, yeah, of, of the journal of his life, and um, 
it's sort of a little bit the way you were talking about New York. You want to see like what happens right at the end, you know, <laughs> totally. I, yeah. I kind of feel that way about what he's doing. I kind of want to know what he's going to say the day that last day. Yes. Yeah. Where, you know, uh, like he says in one of his uh, stand up specials, he lets go. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's um, the thing. It's like I got, you know, people ask me, like, why did you get into podcasting? And it's like I didn't. I didn't get into podcasting. I got into the Mark Marin business. Yeah, like that right. was what I decided working on working on radio with him. And the show that we were working on was he was hired not to be the featured player. He was like the comic who was meant to be the sidekick, you know, tell some jokes every now right. and then. And my feeling so quickly, and it was shared by anyone else who worked on the show, was like, oh, this guy's got the juice. Like, he's the personality. He's the one you want driving the show. And uh, that wound up happening. Like, everybody, we made that adjustment with that show. But I just kind of always, you know, I was like, I'm casting my lot with that guy. Like, he's he he connects with people. I get what, like, he does. I, I know what I do, and I know that what I do can work with what he does. And so I just was always on board with, like, being the guy who di- who put Mark Maron on the radio. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, so now you're talking about your days over at Air America. That's right. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, I was there at the launch of that. I was in New York, and I was brought to the uh, the launch party for air um, air america when i was like i must have been in my early 20s i I mean maybe i was 22 years old it was 2004 when when that launched yeah so and i remember it was at sort of like an upscale uh bakery deli over on like uh, west 19th or something al franken was there were you there I was. Yeah, yeah we yeah. were in the same room when it was launched. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell it was. Some a friend of ours, a friend of mine, it was like my mom is uh, working in some capacity with this, and do you want to come to this thing? So we went, and it was like you know Al Franken was there giving a speech, and uh, but I'm I'm guessing that like a young Rachel Maddow was probably sure. there, and like oh absolutely, uh, yeah, Janine Garofalo she... and a bunch of people. Yep. Yeah. There, I mean, it was launched with great fanfare, and it was just it, it happened to be launched basically on a lie that there was there was all this money that did not that never materialized. So the thing was beset by financial problems almost instantly. I think we were like a month into broadcasting, and they were getting yanked off the air in like Chicago and L.A. for like not paying bills. So what was the lie? The lie being that there's a there's an audience for at the time there's an audience oh, for no, left, the lie left simply wing being the very simply just being that it was funded and it wasn't like they had instant cash flow problems immediately. And, oh, really? Oh, an investor issue. Like yeah, uh, there yeah, were just yeah. re- that, literally that was no money. Yeah, that hamstrung the whole op- uh, operation ah, okay. because quite frankly, they did very well. Like everybody, you know, kind of tells the story of it like, oh, that was the failed attempt to do liberal talk radio. And it was a failure only in, in, in terms of management and, and execution uh, of, a, of a company because the ratings were fairly well. Fa- did, they did fairly well in the ratings uh, g- going into 2000 from 2004 to 2005, I think won a bunch of ratings books. So it, it had shown some sustainability. It just couldn't sustain as the business that it was. And then so when it all when it did fold, you know, Marin kind of you and Marin kind of grabbed hold of each other. And he was like, let's use these offices that are now getting sort of cleaned out. And we're going to start recording interviews with people. Yeah. 
and yeah, we, it was just kind of this. Uh, did you ever get in trouble for using oh, no. the, op- the office space? Oh, no, no they just, were so. It, even though you're broadcasting were, from there, they were so toast at that point that like I I don't think there was any. There was not even there was no chance of us getting in trouble for it as it was happening, and then there was definitely no. Uh, trouble to be had afterwards because the place was completely shutting down. Gotcha. And you sat in on a lot of those interviews at first, which was interesting because I went back and I listened in advance of talking to you. I went back and got the, the premium (laughs) subscription, which is now on Stitcher. I think. Yeah. Yes. So um, the episodes were shorter. Yeah. Um, and you used to ask a, a question or two. Was that did Mark ever ha- did he have a rule for you about like how you would chime in? No, no, not at all. It was more that we were trying to just kind of replicate. We were trying to do what we liked to do on the radio, and the radio was you know we we had um, two two radio slots that we had done. Uh, one was a morning drive show, six a.m. to nine a.m., and one uh, was out here in L.A., which was like the first time I. Uh, we spent a lot of time hanging out with you in like 2006. Yeah, uh, we were we were out there in LA doing a, a nighttime show, and the idea was like to do like a late night show on the radio, and so we had like this morning drive mentality, this late night mentality, and uh, I just was like, I I know all the things in both of these formats that I have liked about what we do and I feel really constrained by the just standard radio formats, right? Like we could only do eight minutes here, then we have to go to break or we could, you know, Mm. just all the formatics. So doing a podcast was liberating, but not in the sense of like, oh, we're gonna, great, we're gonna sit down and do hour long, long form interviews. It was really just like, this is gonna be the ideal version of what we wanted to do on the radio. We just can completely control it. The format is entirely in our hands. So those early episodes you were listening to were were the the vision of them was more like uh this is a variety show like this is going to have some right. sketch this it, is some bits have, some characters yeah, exactly yeah, some recurring and it was only, people only by virtue of wanting the guests who were on to like promote the show did we put the guest's name in the episode title we, we were not thinking like oh this is the uh you know John Oliver episode we were like this is episode five. John Oliver is the guest. He's going to bring people to it. So put his name there so people can see it. And that just wound up being what the show was associated with was like, oh, this this is a guest show. Like this is a show, an interview show where there's a guest and I'm going to go listen to that guest. But in my mind, it was always just Mark's show. It was just the, it's the Mark show and these people show up, you know? Now, of the people that were doing recurring bits and things like that, were they getting paid? Did they get equity in the whole thing? No, no. They, the whole thing at that time was like no one knew what any of it was. It was all total mystery. Like what I mean, what I mean by that is if you said I'm doing a podcast, most people looked at that the way you would when you say – uh, you know, yeah, and then I think I'm going to start selling knives or like I'm going to get some Amway going or something like that. Like it was, oh, good luck. Yeah, your podcast. I heard I heard about those three years ago and they went nowhere. Like that was the, mm. the, the general mentality in 2009 was like podcast. That's dead already. Like no, there, there was like, already there was, was some. Oh, yeah, totally. There was like it was like a tech thing like 2004, 2005, you know, Oh, podcasts, these are going to be big. And they never were. And every like legacy media outlet tried it for five seconds and abandoned it. 
And so then really the, the, the major community that was doing podcasts was the comedy community in L.A., you know, driven a lot by um, Jimmy Pardo, um, uh, yeah. Jesse Thorne. Uh, and, and, and everyone knew that Adam Carolla had taken his show. It was, I think he got booted off the radio off K rock out there. And, uh, he, he started doing his show five days a week as a podcast. So there was an awareness among comedians. Oh, you, well, you could do this just the same. Like the best, uh, analog for it that I have was at that exact same time was MySpace. Like everyone kind of felt like I oh, have to have a MySpace presence and this is how you're going to you know, build your, your your audience that's going to come see you at shows. The way that people like Dane Cook and Zach Braff were doing exactly. that right away and did very well, yeah. Exactly. And then everybody kind of, uh, uh, you know, felt, all right, I don't need the day, the full Dane Cook, but I, I need to get like 1% of that going so that I can like fill a, a club, right? Right, right. And, and that was the thought of the podcast was like, we're going to do To help this. him with his road dates. Help him with anything, like get people to see me somewhere, maybe. And the same thing was true of people coming on. Like we were using a lot of people from UCB and it was like they would come and do a sketch on the show with us. And then they would be known in the comedy community that they did that. And then, you know, okay, good. You book a Saturday slot at UCB or something. You're the guy who did that thing on Marin's show. Uh, But it was... I also want to stress that how much of it was communal back then. Like we talked to every, like everybody talked to each other. The, 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 all the people doing podcasts were all up in each other's business. Like, okay, I'll go on your show this week. Or you go on my show this week. And it, it was thought of as a, a, a real all tides, you know, the tides lift all boats philosophy. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you, you could, um, create a almost self-perpetuating audience out of these connected pod, uh, or comedy communities. Um, how much of the, the how much of it do you own the podcast? Are you an equal yeah, partner? Yeah, Mark and I are equal partners, and then and that's where it ends. It's just he and I. That's amazing. And you're, are yeah. you making? Would you can you say if you're making six figures from this podcast? I well, at I mean, this we, point. We started making a living on it in around that time. I was saying, I, I would say it was like the end of 2012, maybe was like, that was a time where I would, I, I could have said to myself, oh, this is a living in a full salary. This is a full family salary off of doing this podcast. And I was too blind by it, by the, the, the fact that I was very deep in working at a, a, a high pressure television job that like required my full attention every day and also the fact that just still even as of 2012 there was no long-term horizon thing for podcasts like it could have been like oh this is the year we've made the most money on this and it's all going to dry up next year like next year there's no advertisers are going to want to do podcasts because it was a failure or something um like i remember having that conversation with somebody be like if you know, if Squarespace ever decides this is a bust for them, like everybody's going under. Everybody's right? going down. How did and you first figure out how to attract the advertisers? Did they reach out to, to you guys? Yeah, I, 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 this is something I try to be, you know, very clear about. This is my perception of it. Okay. And there may be other people that have 
similar stories. And, you know, it's like, so that would be their perception of it. And, but from my perception, there were no ads on anything. Like, we didn't assume it was a possibility even. Like, you, you, you'd see every now and then, like, someone had a personal sponsor that they had a relationship with that, like, you know, probably also sponsored their website. Like, it was like a, 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 there was a, there was a big show called This Week in Tech. And they had sponsors. Like we could see, oh, that's, they're sponsoring that show. And it would be like, you know, a tech brand of some kind sponsoring it. But they were also like, you know, they had banners up on their website. It was all, all encompassing. The idea of just doing ads, putting ads in your show did not seem like a possibility. And it was a relationship I had with an old terrestrial radio ad seller. Like somebody I knew from back in the day. Put me in touch with, um, the people who were selling stamps.com. And they said, would you want to do like, cause they had heard us do a few like of those type of things I was saying to you, sponsorship things like uh, sub pop records would be like, hey, you know, we've got a new comedy album coming up. Can we like, you know, at, can you have Mark talk about that on the show? And it'd be like, yeah, sure, a thousand dollars or whatever. And I'm and okay. done, hang yeah. up the phone. And I'd be like, holy crap, we just got in a thousand dollars to do that. It felt, it would feel really good. And so, then with this idea of like, all right, yeah, I'll talk to them about doing podcast. And they were like, stamps.com people were like, listen, this would be a total test. We we have people internally here who think this is a bad idea, but like, I don't know, you know, this seems very personal, feels like, you know, we like host reads and they're hard to do on like the only people who are successful at it on, on the radio or like Rush Limbaugh. So like, maybe this works with podcasting. And we, they, they like, took out a certain, I don't know, a couple months worth of a campaign with us and it worked. And then they came back to buy a whole year and they bought the whole year. And so uh, the, that to me was like the, I, you know, I, I don't know, again, I don't know if we were the first ones doing that. There were probably other people, but I do know that the the company we work with now who sells our ads, which is, you know, uh, the, the division is called Midroll. Uh, and they've since been bought by Stitcher I, and then right. bought by Sirius XM. Yeah. The the guy who started that, Jeff Ulrich, he said to me like, oh yeah, you guys set this in motion. Like the people who are doing this now in in scale and, and uh, with vo great volume, you know, they've, we've created other ways to do that. But you guys, WTF, like, you're the ones everybody looked, oh, they're doing it. Let's, <laughs> let's get this going. You guys pioneered it. Yeah, I was talking to my wife about like what what episode was it because she's a she's a fan of the WTF pod as well and you know um, I was asking her which episode was the one that had her hooked. She said Fran Drescher. Oh wow! Um, she said it was a great great interview and um, that it went very much in depth and it was you know quite probing and. It, 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 or or that it was sort of more, I suppose, more sort of open. The way she, she mm -hmm. sort of talked about the breakup of her marriage um, and, and uh, aspects of her career. Uh, for me, you know, I think it was my, it was actually my sound engineer, uh, Chris Frontiero, uh, who you met at the, right at the beginning here before, while we were starting to record. Um, he tipped me off to the podcast about eight, nine years ago. And it was when he, I think it was when he had said Louis C.K. had come on and he cried. Yeah, yeah. 
and that hooked me. I that's the one. Then that that's when I I had known about Mark as a comedian. I'd seen him. I think I'd seen him when I was in college do some stuff at the Cellar in New York. I think that times out correctly. Um, but yeah, and then um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before. You were talking about his fans that have been reaching out, particularly in the last year or so. Uh, just discovering that there, there is this very, there's this power, this kind of power of loyalty to podcasting hosts that I don't think that you see uh, often, even with TV personalities or film stars. W- why do you think that is? Like, uh, help me understand it a little bit. Like, is it, it what the difference is from? Well, like going back to advertising for a second, you know, we've I've heard folks talk about that podcasting from an advertiser's perspective has a certain kind of consumer loyalty oh, that sure. you don't find in other mediums. Now, that's a capitalist way of approaching that question uh, and a shitty way of approaching it. But uh, but another way to put it is what I'm asking here, which is that, you know, there's a certain you know, there's a certain kind of. um fan of a podcast and of a host that goes a little bit deeper than the off than, than the connections that people have with other kinds of uh, personalities and uh, performers. Would you agree? And why? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that that's true. I I, I really only ever really think of it so much in, in terms of what Mark's fan base is, you know, like, I mean, it's a good, good uh, way to compare is that like, you know, I'm working. I work with Chris Hayes as well as we've talked about, and he has a podcast that, um, you know, is also an in-depth conversation. Is a uh, very uh, intimate discussion with a person for usually about an hour. Uh, and when I say intimate, I don't mean it in the sense that these get. You know, it's a it's a show driven largely by expertise. He talks to people who are experts in a certain field and you know, helps try to understand something like a larger uh, uh, process point around their field. And I've, I can tell that he's got, you know, he's got a good fan base. Like people that come out to see him when, when, when there was no plague, they would do live shows and people come out to see him. They're very devoted to it. But I don't think he's getting emails to the show. I could be wrong, and Chris and anyone else who works with Chris could let me know if I'm wrong about this. But I don't think he's getting the type of emails where, like, it's people saying, like, uh, you know, hey, uh, I'm at the end of my rope. I might have, uh, I might, I was thinking I might uh, kill myself, and uh, I, I kind of need to listen to your show to get me out of that, right? And so, and that's not a slight on Chris. He's not doing a show that would elicit that from one of his listeners. His listeners are much more likely to email and say like, I never thought I gave a shit about monetary policy and you made me now want to, like I've devoted my entire like leisure time to thinking about that. And I think those two things are good to compare in that you're, you're as a listener, you're entering into this relationship with the podcast host and the, the show that's being produced around that host that is giving you like, you feel like you have one-on-one time with that person. Mm, and so yeah. Chris Hayes is coming to the table with saying like, the one-on-one time you're having with me is like, welcome to the kind of conversations I have that will make your brain bigger and make you feel like you expanded your horizons with something. And Mark's it's like, I'm going to open my heart up and there's a guest here and hopefully that guest will, will kind of 
enter into my openness and we'll walk around a little bit like that. And people respond to that very close, very uh, nuanced relationship. I mean, Joe Rogan is the biggest podcaster uh, in the world, without a doubt, 100%. And I think a lot of that is driven by how he uses um, YouTube and the relationship with people who are watching YouTube and algorithmically being fed something that, that Joe is doing, like an interview with someone, they'll start watching that. Like this is their entry point to Joe. Let's say they're not a Joe fan in the first place. This is their entry point to it. And the show that he does lets people who are watching it know this can be your lifestyle, basically. A lifestyle of whatever you want to judge yeah, you yeah. put on. Yeah, I get that about Joe. I think that, you know, although I, I, I don't really, I'm not a uh, an avid listener. Um, again, you know, no, and maybe maybe it comes down to that simple thing where Marin's kind of like, I'm not really a sports guy. And then for me, I'm a little bit like, this is my guy. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, no, but absolutely. How, how does he deal with, I mean, that's quite a, that's quite an intense kind of a message that you talked about, the example of a message that Mark would get. I mean, about, d- d- does he feel a little bit, I mean, that's, a, that's heavy to carry that around. And I know he talks about, I mean, he's very open about his sobriety, which is a, 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 a I would say it's one of the, it's one of the elements of his pro- program that I find uh, very um, uh, fortifying is listening to him deal with the things that uh, come back and our addictions and uh, the, the the daily work that it takes. And I think even in my own life, I think about what what are those few things in my own life that I, I can be making progress on or or um, but you know, to get messages like that, you know, that I don't know if I could go on without your, I mean, that's a heck of a lot of pressure. I I guess he, you'd have to be a unique person, I guess, to walk around with that amount of, uh, with a kind of a responsibility like that, I guess. There is that, but I also think you you, you hit on it in what you were saying is that he is, uh, you know, a person steeped in uh, recovery um, thinking and, uh, and recovery practice. And uh, there, a big part of that is service. There's a service element to it. And wh- you know, whether anyone um, you know, has any real knowledge of, of what I'm talking about, like um, when you hear about the terms, the 12 steps, yeah. you know, one of those steps is, uh, and is heavily oriented around service. And I, mm, yeah. I, I'm not gonna say Mark thinks of the show as like, as, as like part of the mission of that. I think a lot of people he, would consider it part in part yeah I, I think yeah. he knows that so so you know there's also like i know this just from people other people i know that are in um uh, recovery programs that you know a big part of it is reaching out and i think there's a reciprocal thing there where like someone like mark knows he sure has a hell of a lot of times in his life had to reach out to somebody for help for steadying for just any kind of you know emotional reassurance so uh he knows what that's like and he doesn't kind of take it lightly that somebody might be reaching out to him and he's just got to, it doesn't take a lot to offer someone support. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of the notable episodes. Uh, like I did say, I did go back and listen to, uh, a lot of the early episodes, you know, he's pretty fully formed right away. Like I think of myself, I'm a little bit like on the first season of the show, I think particularly with my intros and things, it's, it's, I, it's like the way that, 
reminds me of how Dan Castellaneta was with those that first season of oh, yeah, Homer like Simpson. Massow, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like right. I'm kind of like, hello and welcome to. And I don't know if that's going to get any better with this uh, season. Hopefully, it does. The well, interviews, you, you, I feel you gotta you gotta remember. Mark was doing radio for a few Preceding years before. This. Yeah, and he did sound like like we've we uh, like one time on the radio we played like. Like maybe we had been on the air for you know our one year anniversary or something, and we played the um, first day on the air and like made fun of it of how bad he sounded and so like, you did oh gosh oh, yeah good. so I, I think that, that just happens in general especially I know what happened with me like I, my my uh, first job out of college was you did a little newscasting the news yeah 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 and so. Uh, I've listened back to those and they sound so bad. And it's it's just because you're in your head a lot with like what you think you're supposed to be doing. And uh-huh, it does take, right. it's it's a it's a real skill and you're probably, you know, realizing it and you're kind of uh, molding it and coming into it, the skill of holding that microphone. I don't mean holding it in your hand. I mean, holding it between your lips. Well, I like doing mic. the, I like doing the interviews and I, I've done some interview shows in the past uh, or hosted them. And I think that like the interview portion I enjoy, it's, I think it's the monologue stuff. You know, I think that Mark has an ability to go on a, on a sort of a comedic tangent in a way that I don't, I could try it, but I think I might end up in a place. I could be doing that for 20 minutes and then be like, what the fuck am I talking about? Right, Whereas I feel right. like with him, like I think as a listener a little bit, I'm like, what is he talking about? But it goes somewhere delightful most of the yeah, time. Right. How I mean, how many of those does he do and then has to start over and be like, and you have to end up choosing? I mean, that well, he rare, must. It's very rare that I choose. He he would if he's ever, and I don't know that he's ever like started and 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 completely done it over. He maybe once or twice in the thousands that we've done. But the 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 thing that I will do is and I've just gotten, it's become second nature for me, is to just know, is to just be an editor for him. There's no really other finer point to put on it than to just, like, it's the same thing you would do for someone who's a columnist or who's, uh, uh, you know, writing a book. Like, there, he hands it to his editor and his editor goes, I know exactly what you're saying and this is perfect and this is hilarious and this, and here's the chunk that doesn't need to be there or here's what we're going to tighten up. And... Um, you know, what I've always said is I just am there to facilitate the best possible experience that you as a listener can have with the show. I'm not there to change it. I'm not there to alter the meaning of what Mark is saying or what the guests are saying. I, I just know, I know in my head how this is going to sound as a listener and I want the listener to have that best possible experience right and now you and i know that you've taken you take out some of the ums and the ahs and things like yeah, and the pauses sure. and things like which i don't really generally notice i've tried to listen more carefully i mean how much are you editing some of these episodes like like it's so much more now like because of the way we're doing this with the with the um you know remote locations you know that you have a, a person who uh you know, it's recording on like I'm doing for you right now, recording on my phone yeah. or like yeah. sometimes people have a good microphone and they've got that set up or sometimes it's just, a, you know, they don't have anything. They're an old, maybe an older person who is like, hey, guess what? I don't do tech. So you're just going yeah, to yeah. talk into the computer and that's that. And you're like, OK, we'll do it. We'll make it work. And so I've been spending a lot more time in the last year on, on the on the actual editing process the physical movement of audio around in a, in a, in an audio software program. That's, that's been more intense. 
I want to talk a little bit about um, some of these notable episodes. It perhaps makes the most sense to start with uh, the interview with President Barack Obama. Um, I know you've been asked about this interview a lot, but um, interestingly enough, we got drinks here yeah. in L.A. Immediately, immediately following that historic interview. Yeah, yeah. over at the Tam O'Shanter. Um, and we all got pretty drunk. <laughs> um it was a great moment. You yeah. were you were in a obviously you were in a great mood. You were vibrating from the buzz of that day. Um, sure. Do you? I mean, are, could you walk us through maybe just for my audience one or two of those sort of odd or fun details again from that day? Like, what's what's sticking out to you today as you think about it? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, what the, I always remember about that, and it's not tiresome to me at all, is that you know the the <laughs> the. Uh, full weight and force of the United States Secret Service, you know, came to bear on Mark's tiny piece of property <laughs> in the Highland Park, Los Angeles. There were snipers on the neighbors' roofs and things like That's that. That's right. And and like the whole operation it was the it was there was no difference between the operation that went on there and that what must have to go on like when he is uh, you know on a on a foreign trip or something. Like they have to do the same, it's the same protocol, it's the same level of detail and intensity. And to know that like this thing that we started, as you mentioned, like sneaking into Air America after hours to record in 2009, and that we do it regularly just out of Mark's garage with him in LA and me in New York. And, you know, I, I have, you know, edited maybe 90% of the episodes of the show, like on my couch. Uh, and, 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 and like push publish on it at like three in the morning, yeah. um, to, to know that just in doing the, like we did that thing and then it turned into a day where the entirety of the, the executive branch of government was focused on that garage for that day. And then when we aired it, Incredible. the entirety of like the public was focused on what we were doing for, for, for that period of time. You know, it was like, I remember seeing Washington journalists that were like, does anyone remember the last time an interview has caused this many days of like <laughs> follow up and coverage and like this is wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, he opened up quite a bit and it was it's a wonderful interview. I've listened to it at least twice and you 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 then you and Mark went on to do a sort of a follow up episode. Um what did change after the Obama interview? What changed in terms of um Maybe, you know, we've been talking a little bit about maybe the ability to get certain people to come on. Was there a, a, a mark, marked change after that moment? I would say that it was it wasn't like immediate, but it was definitely you could we could feel it. Like you got Lauren Michaels after yeah, you got Obama. Right, so right, do you think that was after. the thing that finally because I know, you know, Lauren Michaels was a big get for Mark personally. He's talked about yeah. that a lot. Do you think that happened in part because because Obama came on? Um, I I would always say it's prob it's a possibility. We were working the Lorne one for years, so it, it it could have been like was the Obama thing the thing that put it over the top? Maybe was it the fact that at the time it's funny because you it all kind of ties back together. At the time, Lorne was trying was working on something with Louis. Uh, I think what wound up being like a show that Louis was doing, like a cop show that Louis was doing that then got canceled when all his stuff went down. Uh, but Lauren was was working with Louis or at least meeting with him about it. 
And it could have been that. It could have been like, oh, I know you're Mark Maron's friend. You know, and then like, he thought to do the show or whatever. Who, who knows? But was there a major difference after Obama was on? It wasn't like all of a sudden we were getting bigger guests. It was more the consistency of it. Like we didn't have to worry about there being like a fallow period anymore where we're like, oh, we're just not, we're not lining up guests right now. We're going to have to work harder at this. It was really, you know, anybody now that we were either pitching to or who were pitching us, like they knew the show. This is a show, mm. you know, it's notable podcast. Who do you want to get? Gene Hackman. Oh, that, ja- that would be amazing. Jack Nicholson. Are these yeah. things like this in the world? Who's the next Lorne Michaels? Uh, what about, it's hard to what say. about like uh, Beyonce? We've always put our, put our names in for Beyonce. I doubt that would ever happen, but we've always put our names in for it whenever it's a possibility. Um, the thing, the ones that are like, the, the, the things that are like uh, uh, attractive to us in terms of going after a guest are ones where Mark is like, I have something specific to talk to that person about. Like either mm. he's like a massive lifelong fan or like with Eddie, with Eddie Murphy, it was like, Mark was just like, I want to talk to the comic Eddie. Like I want to talk to the guy who did the clubs on Long Island and was like the comic, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and so, you know, that was like, a you know, one of our dream guests. And so similar to that is like Albert Brooks, uh, Bill mm. Murray. Oh, um, yeah. For Tom, uh, for Tom, for Mark's personal uh, uh, f- fandom, uh, Tom Waits is a guy oh, who's yeah. like that. Sure. Uh, Bob Dylan, obviously. Um, you know, those are people who mean something to Mark and he would love to talk to them. So there are ones that are always going to be out there. And I'm sure there will be ones we'll never get. So it's that's another reason why when you ask like oh do you see yourself winding up uh, winding the show up winding down rather uh, no because it's always going to be there during this pandemic I think there's been an in, my guess would be that there's there's been an increase in listening to podcasts during this particular time and I wonder if um, I wonder if that's going to change as we sort of come out of this and we start. Uh, our old habits again, although there will be more commuting and I'm sure that commuting was part of the listenership. Um, yeah, I don't really I know, just, but I think it I is think... about telling a story. It, it, would you agree? You've talked about this, that each episode is kind of telling a specific story. And would you agree that whatever the podcast is, that you're, that is one of the goals is that you're trying to tell a larger story with what you're doing? It's absolutely my goal as the person putting it together. Totally. I would say, though, that's not necessarily the audience's perspective. I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit already, that the main thing you're getting from as a consumer of podcasts is your choice of how you're going to spend your time in your head for this, for whatever period of time you're, you're choosing to do that. And the podcast is a great thing because it's always a second activity. Uh, you know, unless you're talking about, you know, watching a simulcast of it on YouTube or whatever, if you're listening to a podcast, you are also choosing to exercise or do the dishes mm-hmm. or do a puzzle or you're driving in your car. And it is, but it has supplanted uh, what was, you know, what used to be a kind of programmatic norm about that when you're talking about like radio, where they're like, just fill the space. You need that background thing. You need a guy talking. If it's sports talk radio, we're going to put this show on for five hours because I could just say the same thing over and over again. And you're kind of 
driving around or you're in the grocery store and you're listening to that guy on the radio and it kind of comes in and out. The podcast is a much more direct, intimate relationship because you're choosing. You're saying, you're holding this thing in your hand. You're saying, here is the menu items I have and I'm pressing play on this one. I want it in my head right now. And the so the, the imperative for a podcast maker is like, deliver on your competitive advantage there. What is it that you have that when people look at all those tiles on their podcast app, they're like, that's the one I will go to first, or that's definitely the thing I'm going to hold for when I'm on a trip or whatever. Like, make sure you have that advantage. Great. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think that the stories of each of the interviews oftentimes are the case. You know, when he did when he has Carlos Mencia on, it becomes you want to check in when he says, like, I don't think we got it. So we're going to do another you know, we're going to follow up on this and do a second episode. That seemed to be the story of the Carlos Mencia episodes as an example. Um, Well, great. Brendan, I just want to ask, I guess, finally, where can people find you online? I I have very drastically reduced my online footprint, but I do still have a Twitter account. Uh, You got rid of your Snapchat and all that? I've never, ever had anything like that. I've I've been without a Facebook page for maybe eight years now. Yeah. And I I used to be a kind of compulsive uh, tweeter, and I was much, much less these days. But I'll still chime in there from time to time, and you can always... Uh, reach out to me and ask yeah, you're me great on I, there. So, how, wh- what's your handle on it's uh, pro- Twitter? Producer, producer McD, producer MCD, and uh, and then the show is is WTF with Mark Marin, and that's at uh, uh, any podcast uh, delivery service you choose. Uh, yeah, I think you could look almost anywhere online and find WTF pod. Yeah, I think so. Well, Brendan, it's a it's a huge pleasure to talk to you always. Um, yeah, buddy, you're a brilliant guy, very funny guy, and uh, you know I'm very I'm humbled and appreciative that you would come on and do this interview. Um, oh well, I, it was my pleasure. I'm I'm uh, always happy to see you, and uh, it's nice that we were able to talk even in this mediated uh, environment. I know, yeah. Well, you're you're one of my favorite nephews. <laughs> Thank you, Uncle. You're very kind to do this. Uh, wishing you and your family safety and good health. Yeah, same to you, Claude. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, I want to say a big thank you. Give us a subscribe and those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our merch for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle, at things are going great for me. Stay tuned because we've got eight more incredible episodes in season two, premiering every Thursday, including interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Kevin Avery, Corbin Reed, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, and Shelley Bala, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Sierra Hauser. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. I like my pasta shells small and my Reese's cups big. See you next time.